This show is all about near-death experiences and the lessons we hope to learn from those who made it out alive. Each of the stories we tell is incredible in its own right, but now and again we hear a tale of someone who seemed to survive something approaching miraculous, and we can't help but marvel at their luck in the direst of circumstances. There are those who come so close to death that their experience acts like a level reset, a wake-up call. It's illogical, but also painfully relatable, that for some of us, it's only when we come face-to-face with dying that we remember what it's really like to live. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was a worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. Hi, my name is Alain Duguay. I grew up in a small town in New Brunswick called Edmonston, and then I moved to the Yukon. And uh, the story, the Cherry Bowl uh, experience. Uh, it happened in 2013. Yes. We decided, me, my boyfriend, and another couple, Matt and Laura, decided to, to do a ski trip. We had one layer in the snowpack that was of concern. A week later, a persistent week later in the snowpack, like a month prior our trip. Avalanches are caused by three factors. Terrain, weather, and snowpack. Imagine the snowpack like a layer cake. Layers accumulate as snow falls throughout the season and different layers have different densities and textures. The recipe for an avalanche goes something like this. A strong layer of snow above a loose or breakable layer, a trigger that causes the weak layer to fail, and a slope steep enough for it to slide. We did our due diligence and we, of course, checked the forecast and said, okay, we'll try to play it mellow. And we actually met some locals. We kind of poked their their heads and their brains about what the conditions were. And our reactive was that specific persistent weak layer in the snowpack. And we went and sniffed out the snow for ourselves. The snowpack was, was a, you know, a little bit uh, delicate. Here's Matt Schneck, a Nick and Elaine's friend and ski partner. And we did find things slid, you know, fairly easily. We pulled the plug pretty early and we were watching locals hit these big lines. We saw a group of people like skiing really bold lines. And we were just like, wow, this is okay. So we can, it's, it's actually okay. They were all super steep, sustained runs. And nothing went. It looked pretty good in terms of, of reactivity. So we planned on, on skiing a Cherry Bowl, which we skied um, a few years prior. 
and, and we had a great time skiing Cherry Bowl. Located in the Coast Mountains in northwestern British Columbia, Cherry Bowl and the surrounding area are known for deep powder and long, steep ski runs. Under the right conditions, it's a backcountry skier's paradise. Under the wrong conditions, it can be a death trap. So for some reason that day, I was not feeling up for it. Uh, I was kind of tired. I didn't really want to, to be a party pooper though. So, you know, you put your gear on and you start, you start climbing. It, it was just like a, a bluebird day. It was super beautiful as usual. We skinned for like two hours. All along the way, of course, we poked the snow to see what was going on and it felt pretty good. And that day, the forecast was considerable. Backcountry skiers rely on avalanche forecasts to understand avalanche risk throughout the season. Forecasters use data and observation to report daily snow safety forecasts. Every forecast includes one of five danger ratings that grade the overall risk of a slide. Low, moderate, considerable, high, and extreme. On a considerable day like this one, human-triggered avalanches are likely, and it's possible for them to be very large. In other words, considerable danger is quite dangerous. So we went out with that in mind and made our way top of our expected run, you know, and Matt, he offered to dug a pit at the top of our run. I dug a quick pit before we descended in, just quite near the top of it. Snow pits are a useful tool for backcountry travelers to get a sense of what's going on under the snow surface. By exposing a cross section of the snowpack, one can conduct tests that might give some hints as to how stable or unstable the avalanche conditions are. It, it was non-reactive, it looked quite good. And I think that combined with not wanting to change our plan led us to, to drop in without further evaluation. As a group, we decided to, to ski the line. But prior dropping in, we saw a group of four guys coming our way. We could just see them and kind of made out a group of four. This is Jupiter McDonald, a local in one of the four skiers Alain's group saw following behind them. And we, so we continued along following their tracks. So uh, one by one, we dropped in. And the way the bowl is, you've got this first pitch that I call, which is the concave kind of pitch, and then it's, it settles out onto a plateau in the bowl before hitting several other shoots on the second pitch to end up in the runout zone of that entire bowl, basically. So it's like a two pitch to, to this. So all of us ski that first pitch. It's beautiful powder, of course. It's the, the run of our lives. The snow was the perfect depth. It was fast. You could just kind of almost carve in powder. It was, it's just like this perfect, sustainable snow. And we had a hoot. We get together as a group and talk about the second move that we want to make. And Anik, my girlfriend's a bit hesitant on the, the second move. I had enough. It was fun, but I, I had enough. I was ready to go back and call it a day. I was thankful that it was still, still alive, everything went well. And why? I don't know. I, I had no clue why I was feeling this way, but this is how I felt. I actually do remember saying 
not quite loud enough for everyone to hear about which way should we go or should we you know there's so there's just these little things that you look back on i turned a blind eye on all these feelings which you see often in most of these stories and you think it doesn't happen to you and until it does so i jump in and even myself as i jump in i i'm not in it like a hundred percent but i've got momentum i'm in and so if somebody of your team goes down it's like okay well you can't leave one behind so everybody followed and i remember skiing that second pitch and i was scared i was scared like i've never been before while i was skiing a line and it's not it was not a difficult line so I, it wasn't fear from not being able to ski down it was a different kind of fear it's almost like the mountain was like you could feel something i've got shivers just talking about it so uh, i ski it and instead of stopping at the bottom like fall line i go left down that runout zone and i don't know 20 25 turns below terrain that i haven't skied yet and it's different terrain i think matt's the last one coming i like to milk pretty much everything in life for the to the max and so i went a little further down than they did even though it wasn't that steep so I did a few more turns and ended up maybe uh, 70 meters down below them. So uh, we start in our transition. Matt is facing us. He's facing Cherry Bowl. And him looking at the mountain, he sees it first and he yells avalanche. I still have the sound in my head for sure till I die. As I yelled it, I saw that the entire ridge was coming and it was coming down on me as well. And I don't remember like thinking about what to do. I just ran uphill. Here's Jupiter again. Remember, he is in a group with three other skiers who are at this point safely perched on the ridge above Cherry Bowl. It was kind of just this deep, super deep, low rumble, and it was almost like uh, you could feel it shaking. When it moves like that, it becomes this crazy, destructive, crushing force, right? as it's sliding down into the, the the bottom of the valley. And those people, you know, are down there. We all turn around and we look at this thing coming at us and it's huge. It's uh, this big powder cloud engulfing my entire eyesight. I mean, it's the big white dragon coming on us and it's coming hard and my first thought was yeah i don't think we stand a chance this is too big to to survive i remember thinking i had the sandwich in my hand and I said oh i gotta hold on to my sandwich because i'm gonna need it if we want to get out of here alive and I still remember that feeling of squeezing my sandwich between my hand and I looked back again on my right and it was right there. So my reflex was to, okay, I just want to go 
down with it. I ran towards the avalanche to a tree that was there, not a very big one, but it was a little bit of a tree. And I just grabbed onto it and buried myself into it. So we start running, but we're not going anywhere. This stuff just swallows us. I only had time to do like four or five steps before that avalanche hit us from the back. And we start swimming in the stuff. For me, the feeling of swimming in this river of avalanche of snow is just like being a rag doll in a washing machine or being beaten by the surf on a big wave, you know, in the ocean. I didn't have much means of doing what I wanted. My last hope is if this stops and I end up on top, well, it's the luck of the day, you know, but the size of it all, I doubt that I'll be on top, but I've got my fingers crossed nonetheless. I felt the, the blast from the, the powder cloud shake the tree and me, and there was a, a, a cliff just above me where that the avalanche kind of went around and closed in again behind me and closed in where my skis were, my pack, my probe, my shovel, all that stuff was there and, and was buried. And you can feel it slowing down and you can hear it and the ride is almost over and the result is about to be revealed. And of course, it stops and your luck has run out. You're under the snow. You don't know how deep you are because it's just pitch black. You realize you're pretty deep in that pack of snow. And then you can hear that snow like, you know, when you do it like a snowball and that snow just kind of uh, packs together. It's almost like I had hope right until that snow stopped and there's silence. Everything I read and learned about surviving this river of snow doesn't hold up for me. People will say that, okay, you swim on top, do a, a hair pocket where, with your hands when it stops. Uh, there's these actions that people think you can do or you should do or or it, it sounds all good in in theory but in real life it doesn't match and i was surprised yes i was super surprised i was completely vulnerable and uh, when it seizes you're mummified you're stuck in your snow tomb I could move a pinky, so you realize right there, that's about it. You can take whatever oxygen that's in the snowpack, you can try, you'll take everything that's there, but there's not much. All the oxygen has been pumped out of that snowpack as it compacted your body, and you breathe whatever's left, and eventually there's not enough. The air that I was breathing was compressing my chest so much that the air was kind of maybe going in my throat, maybe in the top of my lungs. You realize that you're deep in it. It was, it was a very interesting moment for me where, you know, sometimes you, you think you have control over everything and uh, you're underneath that snowpack. You can't move, you can't do anything, you have no control, this is it. I wasn't coming out of there. You, you have time to replay your life and 
see and, and, and think of your loved ones and, and feel it and and it goes so fast, it's done so quick, but so emotional, so strong that it, it's the end. So that was it, I was done. So I just, I passed out. I got scared of not being able to breathe. It was pretty panicky. And then I went through a range of emotion. It was very, very fast. Like the first emotion that came up was anger. Being angry of having come down that hill, even though I, I felt like we were not supposed to be there, not having said anything. Um, and then it was like, it was gratitude, realizing that I did not have any regrets in my life and no unresolved business. And that was kind of the end of it. Everything went black. I was just at peace this, this whole time. When I turned around from the tree and the entire landscape was different, it was just this sinking feeling of, of darkness that just like my friends are under. And, and you know, especially when I realized I had no shovel skis or, or anything. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm gonna be driving home alone 15 hours back to Whitehorse. And then I just fought that darkness back and and just, thought to myself, I can only do what I can do and I will do what I can do. And, and that's to try to locate them. Backcountry skiers wear avalanche transceivers or beacons as a safety measure. Beacons are worn close to the body and transmit a signal that can be detected by other nearby transceivers. When the need arises to locate a buried skier, those above the surface turn their beacons into search mode and begin scouring the area. And so I, you know, turned on my, on my beacon and started heading up to where I had last seen them, uh, which without skis took some time to get to where they had been, 70 meters or so above me. And it was right about that time that I saw skiers coming down. There's one guy standing there and he's got no skis, no backpack. And I don't even think he had uh, his jacket on. And he has his beacon out and he's, you know, doing you know, an initial search for his friends. I, you know, I had no inkling that anyone, that, that I was going to get any help. And then, you know, when I saw them, I, I just yelled, help. And of course they came straight to me. There's avalanche debris, you know, hundreds of feet around in every direction from him. And it's just absolutely astounding that he didn't get washed away. I could see how they were just baffled. How, how would somebody be down there and not be in it? But I was able to provide for them the information, make sure how many there were, where they had last been seen, and, and they then took over. The four guys that came down were just super efficient, and, and they were able to locate them in that massive area. Within a few, less than a minute, they had the first person located, and they were, yeah, they were just a, a well-oiled team training kind of kicked in and even for I think for all of us throughout that whole situation it was very it was very fluid right we all of us continued down skiing down back and forth along the slide path and caught up to to Matt and Mikhail and they had already located one of the, the burials 
you take your last bit of oxygen and before you black out, it seems you have an entire life in front of you. It touches everything and everyone really specifically to relive your life and make peace with yourself because this is the time. Everything was settled in a flash. I was like taken aback on how efficient the process of dying is. When it comes to the odds of surviving a full burial, every second matters. If rescuers act quickly, victims have a decent chance of making it out alive. Close to 80% of buried victims survive if they're excavated within 10 minutes. But after that, the chances of survival drop steeply. After 15 minutes of burial, around 40% of victims survive. At 35 minutes, there's less than a 10% chance of survival. Elaine and his group estimate his burial time is somewhere between 20 and 25 minutes. As you're digging, it's going through your head that every second you're taking, they're not able to breathe at all, right? And they're, you know, so you just, you can't stop, you can't break. So you just keep keep pushing and keep pushing and keep digging and digging and digging to get their heads exposed, right? So eventually I get to his face and I see it's totally blue and I get snow out of his mouth. And as I'm digging away, I'm uh, shouting at him, you know, stay with me. You can do this, fight through. <laughs> you know, we're here, we're gonna, we're gonna help you. <laughs> and uh, it's Alain. So when I start hearing voices, I don't know what to make of it, you know? Is this heaven? And you try to make sense of it. And I'm hypoxic on top of that, so I'm like drunk on the lack of oxygen. So I, don't, I can't make sense of anything <laughs> at that point for me. As I'm digging, and digging him out more and more, I can see color starts coming back to his face, and which is such a great sign, you know, because it means that he's actually still, there's still life, right? I think at this point as well, uh, Mikhail and Matt had already recovered somebody and they were out and I could hear voice. So it sounded like they were alive and, and okay. And then uh, Brad is still working and Matt had gone to help Brad. And uh, again, at some point I hear voice as well. And I think that's a Nick and it's like, holy smoked, people are coming out of this. Yeah, they, they look very surprised. And for me, it was like, hey, <laughs> wow. And not realizing it's like I was almost like in, in shock. And I was like, holy geez, is it like really real? Like... I'm seeing the daylight and it's almost like I was analyzing every thoughts, everything I was saying. I was like, is it, am I really speaking? Uh, what I'm saying, does it make sense? Do, do I have brain damage? Or like I was analyzing myself this whole time. Um, and after a while I was like, okay, I, this, this is real. So yeah, Michael and I are working away at this 
the last person here, Alain, and eventually we get him and we get him all out and get all the body parts free and, you know, he, and get him moving. And at some point he regains consciousness and I can hear him making noise. And he's making these kind of coming back to life sounds, which is just so amazing to hear that when you hear the life coming back to this person that you thought was dead. So these guys dig me up and I start to take in oxygens and I come to, and it doesn't make sense, of course, but I realized that these guys that were behind us on top of that mountain actually came down and saved our lives. And I, I was just amazed and I couldn't believe that I was back on earth again with a bonus life. And to test it, I was whistling. I was, like I said, hypoxic, like a bit of a drunken sailor. When we got to Elaine, it, it, it was, you know, I remember him being as if he was drunk and very drunk. And, and, the, and the way he would be when he is drunk too. I mean, he, he, you know, really funny. It was just this, you know, joyous moment when all of us were out. You know, eventually within several minutes, all of them, the three of them, are talking away. And, you know, it's just this crazy, surreal moment. It's really interesting because it's like you're being born again. You have all those questions coming into your mind. So, like, why did this happen to us? What do I have to learn from it? Why did I come back? I'm alive and other people, like, they die going through an experience like this and so much questioning and and Alain, my partner was going through the same same process i've always been a spiritual type and after this event it kind of cascaded me into making sense of my life a bit more in terms of my values and beliefs and relationship with family members or friends or, or any human for that matter. It's a rebirth, basically. Having lived this experience helped me do that dive and basically walk that line a bit straighter, if you like. Looking back at it, every star was a line. It was just perfect in every way. And that's what it was supposed to be those four guys that were following us. Uh, even that the snowpack, it was fluffy enough for us to have enough air to last that long uh, underneath the snow. Um, so it, it just really helped me integrate and, and feeling that I had a reason to, to be here, to still be here. There's something else for me to do. So that was, that was part of, uh, of my process going uh, through that experience. I originally thought that this was, you know, such a wake-up call to not sweat the small stuff. No little nitpicky things that, that Laura and I were going to come up again, you know. And the reality is the little nitpicky things come up again. Life returns kind of to, to, to normal. I always cherish my free time. So my first big step was to work less. <laughs> 
I went half-time instead of full-time. And I always felt that I wanted that in my life. I'm in a position where if I don't create what I want, I might not have what I want. And what's the purpose of life if you're not living what you want? To feel that death is always there. It's always, always there. Um, so it can happen any other time. So what is it that I want in my life? What is it that I deeply, deeply want? So I, I got way more stronger in, in what I wanted and what I did not want and being okay with it and just kind of follow my heart and my path. So you just make different choices and it, it's just, it's magical. All the choices that we have, we can pretty much create everything in our life and it's, it's yeah, it's magical. Just depend what's your what you're ready to do or I'm not really worried if it's my time, it's my time. This is all bonus to me. We always get together and celebrate our new birthdays. We consider it our, our rebirth because it was, it's, it's like a gift of a second life. I, I made a lot of decisions, changes in my life to reflect all that. And uh, I'm still working at it. And that's my life's work for now, you know, to to die in peace. This episode was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, along with Zoe Gates. Story editing and sound design was by Matt Coderre. Our script writers were me and Zoe Gates. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Thank you to Elaine Duguay, Anik Chasse, Matt Schneck, and Jupiter McDonald for trusting us with your story. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review.